Hiya country pals. It's time to gather around the Wandon Valley Club fire once more for Summer Country Podcast. I'm Melanie Tate, Cookie's longtime dish pig, and hello to my dear friend Kim Lester, who joins us fresh from her shift as the tea lady at the hospital. I don't know about dish pig. Is that, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that. As dish, as dish pig, is that not something they use in Queensland? <laughs> no. Have you not heard that before? What, is what I'm conjuring up accurate? <laughs> Is it cancellable in the future is the question. Is that the question, do you reckon? It sounds pretty cancellable. Uh, how are you? Do you know, since this podcast began, Mel, you and I have been pretty obsessed with the clothes, haven't we? We have, Kim, and we managed to pick basically the most underwhelming couple of eps ever in terms of fashion I know. Uh, for our chat today. But that doesn't matter, does it? Not at all, because our guest this week is Amanda Bloomfield. Her name maybe won't be familiar Uh, to you, but her work definitely will be. She worked in the costume department from around the time that Molly died, so 1985-ish, to the end of the show. And she is going to dish, not dish pig, dish for us. (laughs) Kim, I just thought uh, as well, because we haven't done this for a while, that if it's somebody's first episode of a country podcast, it might be worth refreshing what it is that we do here, or at least what it is that we intend and set out to do <laughs> I here think before we, do a we go good away job. off track. Well, okay, we both grew up watching 1980s and 1990s telly, including the great Australian phenomenon that was a country practice. Yes, and as adults we realised that there was a lot going on on this show and that it said a lot about where Australia was at this time in our history. Yeah, I've just discovered that so much more starkly since doing this podcast. And basically Mm. also every single actor who ever lived in that time frame passed through uh, Wandon Valley at some stage. Yeah, they did, except for Noni Hazelhurst. Yeah, that's true. And Russell Crowe. Yeah, so each week we look at a couple of episodes and then we look at I look at a social issue that um, was in the episode and I look at how that played out in the real world in the time that the episode went to air. And then we also look at an actor or a creative who worked on the show. That's that's the amazing thing that you do, Mel. Then if we're lucky enough, someone from the creative team will talk to us. We've been pretty lucky so far. We've been so lucky. Do you know we've only had, uh, my brother asked me today if everybody who we've asked has said yes. Mm. And that is true with one exception. Yes. And maybe we should see if our listener can guess who the exception is. Sure. Because I don't don't feel that we can share that at this moment. No, 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 that's fine. And, uh, you know, they have their reasons and it's fair enough. We wasn't controversial. Yeah, we might have them. They might come around in time. You never know. Who knows? You never know. I mean, look, if somebody contacted me, uh, for um, an extra news agency reunion and said, Kim, can we can we interview you on the local radio in Rockhampton about working at the extra news agency? I don't know that I'd feel that keen, you know? Well, and I'm not sure if somebody contacted me as the past dish pig at the <laughs> county inn, Robertson, whether I would go to... If it was a dish pig convention, though. Yeah, true. Like it was represent, you know, of course, I'd think about it then. I mean, as you probably. Anyway. <laughs> we digress. We digress, which is something we do. But that's what we do here uh, yeah. on A Country Podcast. So let's get recapping, shall we, Kim? Let's start with a recap. We did season 10 today, When a Girl Marries, which is Lucy and Matt's wedding scene. 
Yes, we did. And uh, preparations are underway for Matt and Lucy's wedding. As usual, Esme is the wedding planner of Wandon Valley and she's doing most of the work, of course. And the book Cookie and Bob hijinks of the episode include Cookie burning his hands before the big weekend of catering and Frank stepping in to show what a renaissance man he is and offering to do all the cooking for them. I love Frank. He's very fancy too. Mm. Lucy's mum Lois turns up but her dad is nowhere to be seen. Mrs G says he wants a divorce and he refuses to come to the wedding because it's not being held in a Catholic church. Mel, I'm not sure if they ever point out the contradictions of those two storylines. He's Catholic, Mm. but he wants a divorce. Yes, but we don't know if he's the one that wants the divorce, to be fair to him. Yeah. Yeah. Matt's father, Gil, has also just arrived in town um, and they're also at odds, but for different reasons, Mm -hmm. namely money and Matt's unwillingness to hunger for it the way that his father does. They find a solution to their wedding day woes by moving the wedding to the Catholic Church at the last minute, and the local priest and the Anglican minister are only too happy to officiate an ecumenical ceremony. But Matt's father, Gil, is not having it. He is Protestant or bust. As is the Wandon Valley Way, Mel, an animal-related mix-up did threaten to ruin the big day, (laughs) but it was no goat eating a wedding cake or (laughs) mid-morning horse slash cow surgery I can't quite remember what kind of animal that was that Vicky had to operate on the morning of her wedding so we'll just move on from that one in other news Luke is recovering from a brain tumor Frank is teaching him to waltz and an unknown visitor gets hit by a car and comes down with a classic case of TV amnesia Mel I was watching this Kim and I must confess I tweeted afterwards saying I really thought and I'm sure you'll agree that (laughs) as somebody who watched 1980s TV I really thought that amnesia would be a bigger problem in our adult life than it has been yeah don't you think oh yeah definitely and in fact I saw that tweet (laughs) after I scripted that line so I clearly had the same reaction (laughs) (laughs) great minds Kim yeah definitely did you do some musings this week you know how last week you did some musings Totally did musings. What were your musings this week? I did week? some too. So, should we explain what our musings are? Yeah. Okay. So you you just kind of wrote down random thoughts while you were watching the show last time. Mm. And <laughs> they were pretty funny. So <laughs> I thought I'm, I want in on that. I'm going to do that too. <laughs> what um, are your musings for this week, Kim? Guinea fowl is the perfect wedding gift for Lucy because she is Molly. Don't you think? Yes. Molly would have really loved is. guinea fowl for her wedding as a gift. <laughs> And so That's does a Lucy. Musing. Did we need the amnesia story? Nothing, nothing, Mel, will top Penny Cook arriving on the back of a ute to her nothing. wedding. And thank God I wasn't a bridesmaid in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Those That's dresses. Great. Are they your musings? Those are my musings. Okay, I've got some similar ones. Yeah. My musings are, of course, Lucy has a well-adjusted relationship with her mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, our little mate Colleen Clifford is back. Mm. Isn't Sophie Heathcote perfection? Yes. Oh, my gosh, beautiful soft old hairbrush. Remember those hairbrushes? We don't have them anymore. Yeah. Those True. soft old lady hairbrushes. We have those detangling ones now. Yeah, mm. which are great. I mean, yeah. let's be honest. I mean, they do the job. Um, Georgie Parker is so good. How do they dope out all these dogs? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) 
I wish I wish that we um could get an animal handler on because yeah. I don't understand. Like, are they dead dogs or these no. dogs that they maybe but- like. I, I don't know if now that I'm a dog owner, I can join in this conversation. But yeah. at night time when um, we're ready to go to bed and we're, we want to put Freddie in his crate because we're crate training, um, okay. he likes to go to sleep under our coffee table, which is just kind of in a corner. It's a perfect little mm, den yeah. for, for a dog. And he just does not come out. He just does not wake up to the point that you... <laughs> This sounds really cruel, but he's fine. You can like drag him by the legs along the polished really? floor, and he just kind of he just goes along with it. He just like you know. Wow, like, I think Freddie is a singular dog. Really, There's no way my dogs would put up with oh, that. No, he's they just not done at the end of the day. Maybe it's all Freddies, and they haven't dogged. Dog Maybe. <laughs> um, uh oh, Cookie's just been a bit racist. Oh, what did he? Oh, maybe we shouldn't repeat it. But what did he say? God, I can't remember, but he said something. Well, it is amusing, so you don't need to. You don't need detail. Yeah. So, uh oh, Cookie's a bit racist. I love Frank in Capitals. He's such a Renaissance man. Copper Rose Gardner Chef, and then Jill Perryman in Capital Letters, <laughs> and then terrible episodes for fashion. So many Browns. Yeah, including the bridesmaids' dresses. And I've got two more musings. Yep. One is take the money, Matt. You idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and. Casey the dog isn't safe. Jude is writing this episode. <laughs> I uh, that was a remarkable recovery for Casey the dog. I really thank God. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. So there are our musings for the week. Kim. Nice. So what do you want to talk about with this episode? Well, there's a couple of things that I think are worthy of mentioning. The Protestant Catholic thing is yeah. a really interesting thing to uh, talk about. I live in a family and am a product of such a marriage really? and such controversy at the time of marriage as well. So in actual fact, my parents' marriage, um, because they're from both sides of the Protestant Catholic divide, um, was called off by, I'm not going to say which of their parents mm-hmm. was because I think, you know how yeah. family get up boomers hate us talking about this sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> One of my family members uh, actually rang up everybody in the guest list and said the wedding is off we're not having the wedding oh yeah and then so they still my parents my mother then had to ring everybody and say the wedding is on we're going to have the wedding they had the wedding on the day and one side of the family at the end went to the masonic club the other half went to the catholic club and my parents went to the summit hotel themselves wow. for their own reception just the two of them oh isn't that heartbreaking? It is. So this is a very, they did get married in a Protestant church though. Yeah. They got, um, so, you know, that sort of, that side, I guess, won out one. in terms of, yeah. So, but but it was a really big thing and I think it was only sort of my birth that started to mend mm. things because it was a really, really big deal. And it remains, I don't know if it remains such a big deal, but I know that uh, when I was visiting my cousin in Scotland about 10 years ago, Granted, she was like 94 then, Mm. but she, who is, you know, one of the most loving, beautiful people on the face of the earth, told me there's no way she'd come to my wedding if I married a Catholic. So I think it's it's not, I mean, it was really a heavy going issue. Yeah. As we've seen in Brides of Christ, you know, that we were watching um, months ago. But I thought this was, it was interesting that it would still be a bit of an issue in the early 90s. Like it's so bizarre to us. And I think it says something 
because, you know, our generation, and we mm. should point out that if you're just listening to us for the first time, we record this from Kim's in Queensland and I'm mm. in New South Wales. Yeah. So we are, we're, a, you know, like a, a cross-national. We are. Um, we, we met in Canberra and then we went our separate ways. Yeah. We did, and we're a multi-state podcast, we really, are. aren't we? Yes. Um, but um, I feel like whenever I hear the stories of mum and dad's dramas and I hear those dramas between Catholic and Protestant and also the dramas are very much still real in terms of in places like Glasgow mm. and yeah. places like that in Scotland, I, it just is so nuts because really we're so all this – It's we can look now and just go, we are so all the same. What could possibly be different? And I wonder and I hope that in 30 years, 50 years, that the whole human family will be like that, mm. you know, that we'll see each other maybe as, oh, my God, why would we treat those people like that when yeah. they're just the same as us, you know? Well, uh, let's park that. Do you love it when people say it, let's park that? <laughs> let's park it. And can you also remind me, please, Kim, yes. that – one of my friends has an amazing, amazing, amazing um, theory about Protestants and Catholics okay. and it's hilarious I and fabulous wait. and okay. let's share that later. Yeah, okay. yeah, can't okay. wait. What would you like to talk about with this? Well, how do you think the wedding compares to past weddings in Wandon Valley? I've got to be really honest with you, Kim. Yeah. I think this this couple of episodes, I feel like the show's getting a little bit tired here. Mm. Like I don't know if it's because it's like the 90s and everything's brown and grey and all that kind of stuff, but I felt like the storylines were kind of hashed out. Like Matt and his father coming to odds about money, I feel like that that storyline was probably somewhere else five years ago. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, even we even had Colleen Bird uh, in the episode. Yes. Playing an old lady. So I, yeah. I, I, I sort of feel like... I feel like it's a bit tired and that the wedding is pretty underwhelming, in fact. Mm. Like, you know, our other weddings we've watched, by the time we get to the wedding, it's like, yay, they made it. I'm so yeah. glad. Whereas this one, it's like they invented obstacles to get in their way. They didn't seem quite realistic. Well, it's funny you should say that because I completely agree that it was it was a bit dull. Sorry, Matt and Lucy. Uh, but um, I actually think, like, I think that Catholic protestant thing was real and i think like the struggle of the parents after i don't know 20 odd years of marriage that yeah. you know that that rings true i think for a lot of people but what it lacked was just like some ridiculous hurdle that is put in their place like a goat eating a wedding cake or, yes, or you know Bob's having to- tooth getting lost in the crock and bush or having to jump on the back of a ute and be driven <laughs> to the altar in, it didn't have the fun, did it? Didn't, it didn't no. have the fun of the other wedding episode. No. Like there was this amnesia storyline that we just talked about. So this guy got hit by a car <laughs> and was in hospital and when he woke up he didn't really know who he was and so people thought, well, maybe this is Lucy's dad, but it wasn't as it turned out. What was that there for? Like it It, it was just a red herring on it Lucy's It was totally just think? a red herring, but it was just yeah. kind of – there was an odd red herring. It didn't really belong there. Yeah, and for anybody who knew the characters half, like in a, even a half-baked way like we do, Kim, you yeah. know, like they would have known that's not Lucy's dad. Lucy's from a steel mining family in Wollongong and that guy was the poshest guy on the face <laughs> of, of the earth. There's no way that was Lucy's dad, you know. It's sort of, yeah, it was a total red herring. You know one thing this episode really did for me though is it reminded me and showed me what a special actor Georgie Parker is yeah. and how beautifully she just connects with everybody, 
Don't you think? Like, absolutely. She's just heaven. There's a scene, well, there's a couple of scenes where she's in at the hospital talking to our old Colleen Bird. I think her name is Lady Sp- Spinner or something, Spinner or something. Frida like this. Spinner. Frida Spinner. Great name. And the way they are connecting, there's so much love there and mm. warmth. And I just thought, this is why Georgie Parker has had a career that's gone on forever and ever because she's glorious to watch because she's so in the moment and so mm. beautiful and happy and connected to people and she was Australia's sweetheart in the 90s like she was Mm -hmm. her and Lisa McCune I don't know if I've just said this to you Mel or if we've actually said this on the show but they were everywhere and everything in the 90s like it was just and you know probably because they were each in you know the biggest drama series of the 90s Blue Healers and um, All Saints but I just feel like they were so beloved yeah and you can get that when you watch this episode, mm. like even even by the end when they're getting married and, and after that, like just everything about her is quite glorious and present, yeah. you know. She's just such a lovely character yeah. and I, I remembered why I loved her so much as a kid watching this episode. Yeah. Do you know there's one other thing I noticed about Matt and Lucy that I actually really liked is how much they could not have cared less about the actual wedding like they they were too yeah. tired to go to the hens do and the bucks night and you know they just it, it didn't matter to them where the wedding happened it just mattered mm-hmm. that it happened and they just wanted to be married to each other and I really respect that because I honestly think if if I had my time over and you know I don't want my time over by any means but if I if I rewound the clock I don't think I'd have a wedding. It's just kind of, no, I don't think I would. And it's not that I didn't have a lovely wedding, Mm. but I just don't know that they're necessary, to be honest. Well, it's funny you say that, Kim, because you know how like, like I'm, I can be quite cynical about weddings. I think basically because I haven't had one, Mm. you know, like I, I think really if we're really to get like, get to the nub of it, but this watching this episode and actually watching all of the country practice weddings, they always remind me of what's beautiful about weddings. Yeah. And it's in the um, so you'll have we have the beautiful ceremony always, but then the way they do receptions in Wandon Valley, I just think it's what a community is about. You know, the, uh, even in the um, they have a pre-party for Lucy and Matt that yeah. Lucy and Matt don't want to go to, yeah. and that Esme's upset about because she just wanted to have an afternoon tea and make lavingtons. Just have a traditional shower. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Bless up. And it's so, I just thought everybody being there, everybody having drinks together, mm. all of the men in the town offering to give Lucy away yeah. uh, because her father wasn't going to be there. And then we skip to the reception and the reception is full of lovely connections with people as well. You know, Esme and Terence dance together. And I don't know, I feel like Wandon Valley weddings remind me and and make me think about what is actually beautiful about weddings and that's everybody coming together and celebrating something you know like how often do we do that oh yeah totally do you know two of the two of the nicest weddings I've been to actually the ceremony was not involved like they went and did their own courthouse thing or Mm -hmm. like you know like um officiated on a cliff or whatever um and then they just had a party and that that was really nice. Great. It was lovely to be a part of that. It was lovely to gather with those people. And there were still speeches and, you know, there was still kind of – but it, I guess there was just less pressure on them for the day so they right. could enjoy it, you know. Like they yeah. didn't have to focus on this, like, massive morning of getting dolled up and, you know, like meeting expectations of mm. so many, you know, relatives who don't even give you a second thought most of the time, you know. Like it's yes. just a weird yeah. – 
it's a weird day. And like I said, I had a lovely wedding. None of that was really mm-hmm. my experience of it. But it's just a lot of money and it's a lot of um, – I'm kind of funny about doing things because that's that's the way they're done. And so mm-hmm. I have – like I know funerals have their place, but there's no part of me that wants – my death to line the pockets of a funeral company you know like I, I, mm. I know that sounds mm. really harsh but because people make their living doing that but it's just there's there's an element of marketing involved and and upselling in both weddings and funerals that doesn't sit easily yeah. with me and I think yeah. that's probably partly where where my position on weddings has changed a bit as well do you know what though if they're just done with such simplicity they're beautiful. exactly but then yeah. on the flip side of that just if we speak one second on funerals, a friend of mine, um, her mother died last year mm. and they had a big church funeral in Hobart. And my friend's mother was really a, a big part of um, the Hobart arts and culture scene. Mm-hmm. And it was so high Anglican, you know, like the um, fancy stuff on the, fancy stuff on the, what do you call it, the coffin, yeah. um, hymns and prayer readings and things like that. Oh my god, it was so wonderful. Yeah, and they even afterwards they even took the incest out onto the street, and they all the priests or ministers or whatever they are in Anglican church followed with the incense and their wow. robes followed that like, and there was something so beautiful about the ritual involved. Mm. So I feel like weddings as well, wedding like there's such key rituals in our society. God, who would have thought that I would be? I know. The one arguing for bloody funerals and weddings in this conversation, Kim. What the hell is going on? I've been in lockdown too long, Kim. <laughs> well, maybe we'd better move on. Yeah, let's. Uh, and talk about a complete, well, really not an unrelated ritualistic um, area of society, which is what is going on with this division between the Catholics and the Protestants? That's coming up. All so much fun things for you on a country podcast. I feel like you need to do a traffic report after that. (laughs) So, Mel, the wedding of Matt and Lucy happened on the 10th and 11th of September 1990. So they actually would have just, if things worked out for them, they would just be celebrating their 21st wedding anniversary right about now. Their 31st, Kim. Oh, my God. Their 31st wedding. (laughs) I get it. No, I just... Terrible at maths. <laughs> they have kids. They have middle-aged kids by now, Kim. Yeah. Yeah, they're grandparents by now probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or totally they want to be. Are. They wish they were grandparents. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're so bored by now. They're really wishing something yes. good would happen. <laughs> we need something to take our focus <laughs> off each other. All right. <laughs> um, in the news that week. Caltex workers were on strike and petrol prices were threatening to hit 80 cents a litre, Mel. Is that what they are about now? I never even know. Are you serious? They're like $1.77 in Queensland at the moment. What? Yeah, but it fluctuates in Queensland. So next week there'll be $1.37 still. Right. Don't get your petrol in Queensland when it's high. By the way, I don't know the petrol price, not because I'm rich. No, no, no. It's It's because because you're in lockdown. You don't go anywhere. Yeah, and also, Kim, do you think my mother's going to listen to this? I you, hope she doesn't because I've lost my driver's licence. <laughs> you can tell me later if you want to cut that or not. <laughs> I would rather people know that I've dr- lost my driver's licence through absent-minded driving rather than have them think that I don't know the price yeah. of petrol. <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. US President 
George Bush and yeah. the Soviet President Gorbachev met in Helsinki to discuss the Persian Gulf crisis. And do you remember this story at all, Mel? The Boston Herald sports journalist Lisa Olson alleged that she was sexually harassed by the New England Patriots football players in the team's locker room. Olson sued the team and the players she implicated were fined by the NFL um, after they conducted their own investigation. So this incident is considered by many to be like a watershed moment for women in sports journalism, probably particularly in America. Olsen settled a civil suit, but of course, fans of the football team made threats on her life in the aftermath. God, could you imagine if Twitter was around when that happened? Oh my God. And she was offered a transfer to Australia where she became the first female columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. Wow, because she would have had so much better a time with sexism <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I think the coffee's just kicking in, That's Kim. okay. Epic by Faith No More is in its third week at number one. And Ooh. I had a quick look at the film clip for this song, and it just perfectly encapsulates the musical shift that divides the 80s from the 90s. It's got, like, oh, yeah. bad rocker rap happening, oh, and geez. it's, like, pre-grunge. It just yeah. is, like... This is where we are in music at the moment. Right. Interesting. Yes. Look, I did actually think about researching the use of amnesia as television storylines for the ages. <laughs> but to be honest, as I said, I've actually just never really understood the Catholic-Protestant divide. So that's what I'm going to take you through, uh, a brief history of Australian sectarianism. Uh, I read a paper called mm-hmm. – I read it so that you don't have to, Mel. It's Thank called, you so much. <laughs> it was actually pretty interesting. It was like a 30-page yeah. paper and I was going, oh, how am I going to do this? But actually I, something's going on and I'm suddenly finding it easier to consume paper. academia. Well, I, 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 you know, made my way wow. through it. I hope you I hope that – yeah, that you read the – what do they call the, the thing at the front of it uh, that just summarises it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And that – look – Let's be honest, that's usually what I do. <laughs> I don't know that anyone's coming to this. Abstract. It's called the abstract. Yeah. You read the abstract. That's probably what I should list. rename this segment is the abstract on <laughs> a social history because if anyone thinks I'm actually doing, you know, days and days of research, I'm trying, but, you know, it's hours and Life. hours of research. Yeah, so I read this paper. It's called A Historical Overview of Australian Religious Sectarianism Accompanied by a Survey of Factors Contributing to Its Dissolution by Stephen Blythe. It's a long title. Sectarianism in Australia wasn't just about theological differences. It was a form of intolerance that had, I think, well, and also based on this paper, more to do with class and political differences. Yes, yeah. Yeah, people either followed the Pope or they followed the British monarch. And it was generally a, like working class Catholic and Protestant I think middle class, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's the- that's how it was seen. The Catholics were very much in the minority. And this division between Catholics and Protestants essentially dates back to two events from the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation and the English conquest of Ireland. And they brought that division to Australia when the country was established as a penal colony. So about 25% of convicts were Catholic and before 1819, their religion was not recognised in Australia. They didn't have religious freedom. Catholic couples would even live in de facto relationships before they would be married under a Protestant system, which when you think about it is pretty phenomenal. Mm. From 1820 to 1920, sectarianism grew under the expansionist era of Australia 
It wasn't unusual for job listings to read Catholics need not apply. And one of the biggest taboos uh, during this time was mixed marriages. And I don't know, if you haven't come across this, Mel, you will find this so interesting given the background you've just shared. There's this fantastic two-part radio documentary by Siobhan McHugh called Marrying Out. Have you heard that? No. I could only find half of it. I could find the transcript for the second half, but I could only find the audio for the first. But I've got the links to both to share in the notes. McHugh opens the doco by saying, I came to Australia. I'm not going to do her beautiful Irish accent. I came to Australia in 1985 as a refugee from the Catholic Church in Ireland. I had no idea I was coming to a place where ancient Irish grievances from English colonial oppression to the Reformation still resonated loudly. So 1985, that's only five years before this. Yeah, it's really interesting. McHugh interviewed dozens of couples who married out, which means they entered into mixed marriages, from the 1920s to the 1970s. And God, some of the stories are just so heartbreaking. I really, it, it, it's so worth having a listen. I'm, I, I wish I could find the second half of it. People were shunned, disinherited, excommunicated. Their children were treated cruelly by disapproving relatives and clergy. Just a quick aside, Mel, one of the least surprising things that I learned from this doco was that in Rockhampton, which if you're new to the show, that's where I grew up, uh, in the 1930s, you could find a brochure titled The Protestant's Guide to Shopping in Rockhampton. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. Yes. Speaking of shopping, Kim, Mm -hmm. and adverts for, you know, Catholic versus um, Protestant, I believe that David Jones was the Protestant store and Grace Brothers was the Catholic store. Yes, they touch on that in the doco a little bit. Yes, definitely. And the the Rockhampton thing actually concerns me quite a bit because my in-laws come from this um, family. I don't know if it's my husband's great-grandfather maybe was one of the youngest people in the area in central Queensland to start a business and he started this department store mm-hmm. called, called Milroy's and that building still stands today it's got Milroy's it's like an mm-hmm. old stone building and it, it Milroy's is etched into the top of it but it was like this institution in Rockhampton it was this beloved department store and I just thought oh dear <laughs> I really <laughs> hope they didn't have a hand in that brochure <laughs> so one of the things that um happened and this is probably why your parents married in the Protestant church like you say they won in the end if you we're entering into a mixed marriage in the Catholic Church. You could not be married in the church. You had to be married in the presbytery or behind the altar, as they put right. it. So the Catholics would marry you, um, but um, not properly. Not, by the, not in the church. In their eyes, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Not at the altar. And um, if you were a Catholic marrying in the um, into the Protestant Church, you would be excommunicated. Ben Chifley, uh, our former prime minister was an example of that according to the documentary wow yeah although the catholics were very happy to own him i think once he became prime minister (laughs) (laughs) um a a shift came about in the 60s and 70s and sectarian attitudes started to ease lots of things i think contributed to this multiculturalism saw a huge demographic shift in australia so we became less british generally as a society and with multiculturalism came new minority groups and therefore for new people to treat as perceived threats to our so-called way of life. More and more households also are getting televisions and cars at this time. So they're much less reliant on their their immediate community for information and services. And so people are just, they're they're reaching out. They're they're sort of moving out of their immediate uh, area. 
And probably, of course, the biggest change uh, came with Vatican II, which we talked to Van Batum about in our Brides of Christ special. Rome changed a lot of major policies to bring Catholicism into the 20th century. One of these was that Protestants were no longer considered heretics. But, of course, Mel, attitudes always take a little longer to change in regional Australia, unless, of course, you're in the progressive utopia of Wandon Valley, where the local priest and the Anglican minister are more than happy to boot out a funeral so they can co-officiate an ecumenical wedding with a day's notice. And they just were so, yeah, exactly. They were so happy and loving about it. (laughs) Weren't they? they? (laughs) Beautiful. So So lovely. I'm going to share, I'll... I'll send them to you, Mel, because you you do the wonderful job of posting our podcast online. But I've got the links to that uh, paper in case anyone does want to read it. And also the <laughs> the two parts to the documentary that I listened to. Listen to that first part because it's just brilliant. It sounds wonderful. And shall I give you my Catholic Friends theory yes. on Catholic versus yes. Protestant? Okay, so this is – I actually find this quite amazing. And once you hear it, you'll start applying it to all your white Anglo friends <laughs> and you'll find it. It's absolutely spot on. Yeah. So the theory is that if you are a white Anglo-Australian, you're either culturally – Catholic or Protestant, mm. that is, there's no, you're culturally Catholic or culturally Protestant. So a lot of people will say, oh, no, but my parents weren't religious. You're like, but somewhere down the line, yeah. you know, somewhere down the line they were Catholics or Protestants. Mm. So her theory is that if you're Catholic, and she's Catholic, so she's she gets the fun to be the fun person, she said Catholics are much more fun, they party loads more, they drink loads more because they are absolved the next morning, you mm. know, that they've got the absolution from sin they're much more likely to just be more kind of risk-taking, et cetera, et cetera, whereas Protestants are very, very sort of middle-class, hard-working, care about money over everything else, don't want to rock the boat, don't express their feelings because they're too sober, they haven't drunk <laughs> enough. And, all, and it's really interesting because if you start going through your friends and family It's a massive generalisation. It's pretty spot on. Yeah, I need to start thinking about this. Like I feel like I am the like, and the older I get, the more Protestant I Mm, get. Me too. You know, yeah. And also the whole, like she, one of my friends who's also part of this theory, because once you get this theory in a group of friends, no one can stop talking about it. (laughs) And one of my friends this one night, I, uh, one afternoon I had some friends over and I put on like a spread and it was like grapes and cheese and bread and stuff like that and one of them's like you can't even put a bit of chili cheese in you're so protestant <laughs> like you, you're so boring and bland you just can't even yeah but it's a it's a, it's a really interesting perspective it's, isn't it and i often call myself a wasp i'm a total wasp not in a not in a like i don't know whether american you're a, connecticut a way implies that you're a bit of an upper class asshole doesn't it no well it's a white anglo-saxon protestant is what it yeah. stands for yeah and i'm totally that i'm not upper class and i'm not um, I don't sort of feel like I've got, you know, a social status to hang on to. But is, don't you think that that's part of? I mean, I probably do, and I probably deep mm-hmm. deep down do feel like I've got do have that. But don't you think that that's part of it? Is that Protestants have like a higher social standing, and therefore they want to hang on to that? Absolutely, and it's and you know, interestingly, Van Baden pointed this out to me once when I was sharing something about you know, being anti-pokies mm. and, and Van's not anti-pokies. Mm-hmm. Well, she wasn't back then. I don't know if she is now. And she said, your view on all of this is just so middle class because middle class people are all about um, holding on to financial security. Mm. Like, whereas, and I find it really interesting because I'm like first generation middle class. So when I look at 
like my nana who used to just like she would put her last dollar in the pokies. Yeah. Always. You know what I mean? Like she was always having fun with her money. When there was money around, she'd spend it because she didn't know when it was coming next. Hmm. Whereas like my the other side of my family, the <laughs> the Protestant side, are all very, very careful with money. Yeah, it's interesting this idea that it still lingers despite, you know, not necessarily having been raised in that class system or, yeah. you know. Not, we have not really, o- haven't Exactly, we? like not overtly being raised in that class system, but these things still linger. Boring Protestants. We're never going to have any fun, Kim. We're never going to express our feelings in any sort of significant way. <laughs> oh, well. Good times. <laughs> rock and roll. Who is this big name from the, what did you say, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s in Australian television? Yeah, 50, yeah, 50 60s, 70s, 80s. Can I have a guess? Have a guess by who the character is in this in these series that kind of there's somebody I reckon and I don't know if it was me but when I was watching I was like who is this this person is someone yeah she's got yeah yeah so yeah tell me who you think it was well no I wasn't gonna say she I Matt's dad was familiar to me Uh, he's somebody he's been in something or he's been in lots of things he was in loads and loads of television shows. Okay. He's an English actor. George Mallaby, he was in all sorts of things. He was in Neighbours, Cluedo, uh, A Country Practice. Let's see what else. Cop Shop, Prisoner. Oh, tick, my tick, gosh, tick, so tick, much. Tick, a show called The Box, which was apparently big. Oh, yeah, he that was like the the pre-number 96. Wasn't that like the horny scandalous show? show. Yeah, the horny show of the 70s. So the person I'm talking about mm is I was watching it and I thought, I know this woman. She's been in stuff. I can't think of what she's been in. She seems like a star to me. And, oh, my gosh, suddenly Lucy's mother has this side story that she's hitting the road in her 50s as a song and dance woman. <laughs> that was a little bit random, wasn't it? Wasn't so who was she? <laughs> it was totally random. And the, real, the reason <laughs> Lucy's mother was suddenly a song and dance woman is that she's played by one of the great uh, legends of musical theatre. In fact, the first lady of musical theatre, she was called for a really long time, Jill Perryman. Right. Does that name mean anything to no, you? No, but, you know, like unless you're Marine, Mar- what's her name, Marina Pryor? Is that her name? Marina Pryor. She's basically the Marina Pryor of her generation. Yeah. So, Kim, uh, Jill Perryman was born in Melbourne to a showbiz family and it was a showbiz family that did all sorts of touring showbiz and were even in the circus at one stage. She's a bit of a Judy Garland kind of story. She's got a bit of a Judy Garland background in that, like I said, her parents were on the road and she had her stage debut at the age of two. Whoa. (laughs) Like Shirley Temple story. Yeah, yeah. So she was, I don't think she worked for very long because she actually sounds like she had reasonably sensible parents (laughs) and her parents went and got kind of normal jobs. Like her dad went and became a radio announcer and uh, her mum, I think, went and, you know, worked in a shop in Sydney and she was she was brought up in Sydney and her parents thought, well, if she wants to do it, she'll just do it herself. We're not going to push her into it. And funnily enough, her and her sister became actresses. So where Jill Perryman, um, also known as the Marina Pryor slash uh, <laughs> Lisa McCune of her day, where she's really important is that for many, many years, and I feel like we might have discussed this before, with um, big theatre productions like J.C. Williamson's, etc., when they, they would bring in big shows from overseas and they'd also bring in a marquee talent. So somebody, 
from America whose career was on a downward slope, but you know, still famous enough for Australia, they'd bring that person in. And that was kind of the way they did it. Now, Jill Perryman is really important in why this changed because she was an understudy for years. And I'm talking like 12, 13 years of her career. The beginning, she was understudying roles. And one of them she understudied when she was very, very young and too young for the role was Hello, Dolly, um, for an American actress called Carol Cook. And Carol Cook just couldn't handle doing the show. And... Mm. As understudy, Jill Perryman ended up doing the show many, many more times than Carol Cook herself. And producers watched and she was so amazing. They were like, you know what, maybe we could cast her in something. So a few years later, she was cast pretty much at the same time as Nancy Hayes was cast in um, Sweet Charity. Mm -hmm. Jill Perryman was cast in uh, Funny Girl, the Barbra Streisand show. And that just set her career on fire and she went on to do pretty much every musical that you can imagine and she was the star and she became the star she had her own television show on the abc like everybody does that we talk about (laughs) yeah totally she she really did and she some of the stage roles that she did kim i just want to let you know what they were they were kind of in that um for any theater people that are listening like that love their they were in that gwen verdon kind of mold she did the pajama game she did hello dolly funny girl i do i do no no nanette a little night music side by side by sondheim annie noises off chicago she did them all basically Mm. so she married this guy see now this is interesting kim So she's this big, huge star and she married this dancer called Kevin. um, Federline. (laughs) Maybe Kevin Johnston is her Kevin Federline, but they're still very happily married, right? Right, right, okay. But I just, Kim, and you can decide whether to keep this in or not. (laughs) Okay. When I went hunting for um, stuff on her, because she's like a big, big deal. Oh, mm. and I'll, let me just mention as well, uh, TV-wise, she did, so between theatre shows, she said in interviews how the ABC really kept her alive because she would do radio um, radio plays oh, and she was yeah. on Bellbird with, you know, Jim Davin's mm-hmm. Bellbird for like five years or something like that. So she really did lots, like she never, ever, ever stopped working. But then when her kids were, so she married this dancer um, Kevin, what did I say his name was? Fed- now I've got Kevin Fedline. Sorry. <laughs> Kevin Johnston in my head. Um, and he was from Perth and when their kids were like 15 and 13, he was just having trouble finding work and was like, I can get work over in Perth, let's just go move over there, which, mm. as you know, is great for anybody's professional musical theatre career <laughs> based in Sydney or Melbourne. So unsurprisingly we don't see much of her yeah. pretty much not forever because she this is the thing she pops up at the most amazing times like she played um peter allen's mother in the original boy from oz you know like she people who know how talented she is keep getting her back across from western australia to get Mm. her don't you reckon it's interesting too one thing i did love about the casting of her in this is lucy is such a bright and shining star of course they had to cast somebody who was also yes. a bright and shining star as her mother. It wouldn't have made sense to have somebody else, don't yeah, you think? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And so anyway, Jill Perryman is a really interesting person. There's so many of her beautiful songs on YouTube. There's so many clips of her incredible career. And I just wish she hadn't have been carted off to Perth mm. in 1975 and we had have had her over here a little bit yeah. longer because – 
I feel like we would have seen a lot, lot more of her. And Kim. Yeah. Shall we, uh, let's, I, I would like to change our order today. I think it's only fitting because fitting. <laughs> because we're about to talk to Amanda Bloomfield, who is, was a, was one of the costume mistresses yes. on a country practice for many, many years. I think it's only fitting. <laughs> sorry, I've already used that. Yeah, I was so, so happy with it you had to use it twice. Yeah, to use it twice like all great comedians do. <laughs> um, shall we talk about, shall we do the fashions of the field a little bit earlier? Yes, fashions of the field. A, this is a difficult, difficult episode to pick a favourite fashion in. It really was, although I think I picked mine in the first scene. I really actually loved Lucy's jumper in the opening yeah. scene. It was it was just black with like big bright colours, stripes on it, and it was pretty fabulous. I'm all for that one. Pretty much only the colour, the only colour in this whole episode. There wasn't a lot yeah. of colour in it. Yeah. There wasn't. Okay, um, can we, before you do your fashion, before you do mm. yours, can we discuss these bridesmaids' dresses? Oh, they were awful. They were hideous. Were they... Was that in fashion or was that just the style of the wedding? They were kind of like 90s Maid Marian dresses. I don't know. Yeah, Is that I how you describe it? they were in fashion then. I feel like remembering that this wedding was the height of cool fashion. Oh, really? Not, yeah, but, may, but maybe I'm making that up. I mean, it, sure. Those, do you want to describe what they were well, like? Well, they were like brown maxi dresses with floral print and some lace edging. You know, and I think you're being generous saying it was lace. I'm sure it was probably crocheted bloody wool. <laughs> it was just so awful. But brown. like And so, so brown. I'm so sorry. If you are listening and you got married in 1990 and your bridesmaids wore something like this. I'm really, really sorry. I don't You're mean really to You're really kind to apologise because I really think <laughs> that the bride should be ringing and apologising to her bridesmaids <laughs> if she did that in the 90s. But then really, like, bridesmaids, making your bridesmaids look beautiful is ridiculous. So I get why anybody would, would put their bridesmaids in. So particularly if your bridesmaid looks like Sophie Heathcote, I'm putting her in something brown. Oh, really? and if you as want well. to sabotage your bridesmaids. <laughs> so you want a lifetime of wedding photos with your <laughs> bridesmaids looking hideous just yes. so that they don't outshine, don't outshine yeah. you on the day. Right. Okay. You get one day in this life, don't you, Kimberly? Kimberly? <laughs> That's all it is. It's one day. Um, so look, the the dresses I'm going to, the outfits I'm going to nominate. One of Jill Perryman slash Lois's embroidered jumpers, mm-hmm. you know, that those 90s embroidered jumpers. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. very quintessentially 90s. Wasn't it? And also Lucy's wedding dress was just gorgeous and cute. It was very nice. That was that was kind of a nice Maid Marian. Maid, I'm really going with the Maid mm. Marian theme. I think that's what it was. It was. You know what they need to get rid of as well as all that baby's breath? There was so much yeah, baby's breath that everywhere. Is, that is very nice. When I hear the word baby's breath, I'm transported <laughs> to the 90s. And not in a good way. And do you think Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out around this time? Because maybe that uh, is why they're... For sure. Let's yeah, have a look. maybe that's why I made Marion is the Yeah, theme. all that lovely hair and let's have a look, Prince of mm. Thieves. I'm sure it was about then. When was I can't help it? I oh, know I feel like it was about 1992. Yeah, you're right, you're right. It 1991. Was. I got mm. it with my first Walkman. I got that. I got that cassette. <laughs> I always think about it in terms of what boy I was thinking about when the song mm. was playing. What boy were you thinking about? Um, Terrence. No. <laughs> so, 
not Terence. No, I don't know. Nineteen ninety one. I was eleven, so in year six. So I don't think I was. You were thinking about Astro Boy. It was still Astro Boy and Brett Climo before I realised his personality was too serious. Um, Okay, so let's get this show on the road, Kim, and speak with Amanda Bloomfield, who dressed the stars of ACP from around the time of Molly's death right through to the end of the show. What are the sorts of things that you need to learn on the job when you're working in costume in television, Amanda? Basically what looks good on camera, um, no checks and stripes which will strobe. I had to be careful of white. So, for instance, on a country practice, all the white nurse's uniform had to be dipped in a grey dye. Hmm. So they wouldn't flare, uh, so you probably couldn't tell. Um, so just a very, very light grey colour just because it, they would flare under all the lights. For a country practice, uh, there was a lot of continuity issues that we had to be careful with uh, because our location shoots were for each block, which were two episodes, were done the week before the studio. So if someone was sort of walking outside in through a door uh, into inside, you had to make sure they looked exactly the same when you cut to the studio section of that scene. Mm. So they had to be spot on. People notice those sorts of things. <laughs> How did you find the clothes? Literally just shopping, uh, usually in the local area because uh, we were filming at Epping. You know, it was just purchased off the rack. Uh, we were given a float of about $1,500 for each each time we went out shopping. Uh, so it's carrying a lot of money back in those days. So it was quite, quite scary, really, um, as a young person having all that money. But anyway, none of us got robbed or mugged or anything. So, uh, yeah, it was um, yeah interesting times, I have to say. How many new outfits would you need per block of episodes? Well, you'd have a guest character um, or a couple of guest characters for each block. Uh, depending on the actual character, we could re- uh, source from just our general stock, say if it was a farmer or country stock. But if it was someone that had come into the valley, say, for, for instance, a lawyer or a teacher, or uh, you'd, you'd go out and, and purchase brand-new outfits um, for them. In terms of the... Uh, regular characters, would you recycle clothes on them, like put them in the same outfit over a couple of episodes? Yes and no. Literally we've had a stock. They'd have a a section in our um, wardrobe room with all their bits and pieces, so overalls, check shirts, um, say for example, um, Steve Brennan, uh, and then jeans and things. So, we, yeah, we'd literally take from their stock and and we'd add to that as we went along, depending on what we had to purchase for each block for guest characters and certain storylines for the regular characters. Uh, so that depending, we could actually add to their add to their wardrobe if, if we had the money left over in the budget. Once you were finished with an outfit, what would happen? Was it archived? Archived, yes, yes. Uh, if we thought we couldn't use it again, it would be put aside and we'd sell it off within Channel 7 stuff. <laughs> So there were probably newsreaders, female newsreaders getting around in some of Diane Smith's amazing outfits then. Could have been, but not on air. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or or just the general accounts department. We'd have a bit of a a rack out in the hallway and um, they'd be coming along having a look and picking out what they want and, you know, all bargain prices. So, How fantastic. I'm jealous. (laughs) 
Did you have a favourite outfit, Amanda, along the along the years you worked on a country practice? Oh, I loved all the wedding dresses, I guess. Mm. I think they were the, my favourites. They were just so beautiful and uh, the ones that were made particularly by uh, Therese and Helen, uh, two of the lovely ladies that were very, very beautiful seamstress, uh, Therese being being the wardrobe mistress at the time, um, and Helen would come in and, and help with that. Yeah, they were they were just superb, just, just stunning. Character-wise, I love dressing Bernice. She was fantastic. Uh, Lucy, um, just the colourful, colourful characters, really fun to mm. dress. With wedding dresses, who would make the decisions about the style and the, you know, I mean, Joe's wedding dress to when she married Michael was kind of a slight, had a pinkish tinge to it. Who made those choices? Uh, you would be with the director. Um, the actress herself uh, would have a say. Um, the overall design, uh, Therese would, at the time that she was in charge, uh, she would get a whole lot of pictures together and, and, and speak to so the director, the producer and the actress and make sure they were comfortable. And Yeah, so it was a collaborative decision. Did you have a, a an actor that you enjoyed working with the most? Oh, I enjoyed working with them all, to be honest. Um, I have a soft spot, spot for Joyce. Um, mm. She was lovely. Uh, Brian, uh, Shane, as in Shane Porteous. Um, Leray, of course. Mm. Uh, just they just all came in, got on with it. And so easy to work with. And, and the young one, well, love them all. Honestly, we're just like one big family. We had spent so much time together, especially the crew. The crew were fantastic. I've got to say, Shirley is one of my favourite uh, characters to look at. It, her costumes, her dresses are always fantastic and they're always so bold and they're things that I think I would wear that today. I would love to wear that today. <laughs> oh, so we have fantastic clothes, yes. Yeah. 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 You stayed right until the end of the show. Tell us what made you stick around for so long. Oh, I loved the job. Yeah. Absolutely loved the job. Never had a sick day. I loved it. <laughs> We've heard a lot of people say uh, that after a country practice, they were really surprised that other film sets just weren't as enjoyable and, uh, you know, that, that they never quite found a workplace as, as comfortable and lovely as a country practice. Is this the experience you had finishing and moving on to other things in your career, Amanda? Absolutely. Yeah, I can yeah, agree with them 100%. Yeah, it was just the best days. It was really just fun and um, it was just so relaxed. Amanda, we can't let you go without... Shez, who's one of our listeners, and she also it runs our social media now and she does such a fantastic job. One of her favourite outfits from the show was Shane Porteous's skeleton T-shirt. I don't know if you remember this or not, but she's desperate to know where did you source it from? I, yeah, that was, I think, a little bit before my time ah. um, and might have been his own. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> they like to wear just for a bit of a, um, I don't know, for maybe a bit of a joke. Um, yeah, and I know uh, Brian wore his own personal it was a gardening sort of Terry Tower type thing. His hat was his. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, there you go. How much would you love to have worked in like accounting at Channel Seven when <laughs> Die Smith retired a costume? Oh my! So, I so much. <laughs> I would have been walking past there every day and spending all my money. Wouldn't yeah. you? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Although yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have had. 
I wouldn't have been able to wear it the way that Diane Smith wears wears it in uh, a country practice. But you know, uh, yeah, oh, me well. too. I think I think I definitely would have developed some serious eating disor- disordered <laughs> eating to get into them because they're so good. <laughs> uh, she was great. She was great. Thanks for finding her, Mel. Oh, she's wonderful. All right. Well, we don't need to do fashions on the field, so let's get out of here. Let's do it. Shall we say thank you? Thank you very much to, oh, my God. Can we say massive, massive, massive props to our resident filmmaker, our resident stop animation (laughs) filmmaker, Shez Robbie. If you haven't been to our Facebook page lately, make sure you go there, scroll down a little bit, and there is just this fantastic um, reboot of a country practice, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of crochet. But also, like, uh, there's a trigger warning if you're not into blood, be careful. (laughs) Or chickens. (laughs) It's so great. Oh, she's funny. So, yeah, massive thanks to Shez uh, for all you do on our um, Facebook page. I can't remember the rest of it. Sorry. Oh, and oh, oh that's all right. And also thanks to um, Mike Pajanic for our theme music and Nate Edmondson for doing, uh, for you know, making it making it a country podcast tastic. We're on Facebook at a country podcast. I'm on Twitter at Melanie Tate. Kim's at Kim Lester. And if you have time, please like and review us on iTunes. It's how people find out about us, yeah. and it's how we develop uh, our self esteem. Certainly so. is. Certainly is. If you don't like us, don't review us. <laughs> I cannot handle it. Uh, but no, if you don't like us uh, and you review these us, people don't just exist make sure now. you put your address so I can come and get you. It's moot because these people don't exist. We are that's universally true. loved. <laughs> they certainly haven't listened this far, if that's the case. <laughs> Kim, have a great couple of weeks. You Chat too. with you soon. Bye.